0: How's everybody doing? Doing okay? All right, some of you seem a little unsure, just looking out at your faces right now. You're like, I don't know, dude, how I'm doing. But man, I'm really glad everybody is here this morning. I know for most of you out there, we know each other and I love that this is our church family and that we get to worship together. I also saw a few new faces. And so let me just say this, welcome to just hanging out with us and our family as we worship King Jesus. He is the center of everything we are and we're hoping even today that if you don't know Jesus Christ, that today will be the day that you encounter him and truly bend the knee and understand what a thrill and an awesome reality it is to know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So here's what you can do. If you've got your Bibles, you can open them up to First Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 2, verse 13 is where we're going to go, but we'll be kind of looking at First Thessalonians 2. We've been teaching through the book of First Thessalonians and the whole reason, if you remember right, that I was talking about is is that the Thessalonians in many ways were experiencing some of the same things that we experience. They were confused. They were wondering what's going on in the world. And one of the reasons that I really love this letter is the way that Paul just, he thrusts hope into the middle of it. He knows that one of the most important things that we can have as followers of Jesus, and it isn't just hope in government or hope in our family or hope in our job or hope in the monetary system. As we learned in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, who right now is at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling over all things. And so that's where he intends to take us. He wants to make sure that at the end of the day, hope is essential for us, but who we find our hope in is critical. Now, last week, one of the words that kind of came out that Christian tried to bring to the forefront was this idea of boldness. Now, in many ways, boldness, is a, it's a fascinating word. It's a word that, it, that I think in some ways in our culture, we have defined it culturally. But one of the things we always try to do as followers of Jesus is to go back into God's word and allow God's word to define what boldness is or to define even what hope is. I mean, all these different realities, we don't want to define hope by our culture, by our society, or even our own way. As followers of Jesus, we believe in God's word, and so therefore we wanna draw out from the text of scripture, God, you tell us what something is supposed to be. It's not our job to tell you, you tell us from your word. So what Christian did is he laid out, and kind of at the very end of it, I loved how he ended with just this idea of a family, that the boldness that he had in mind in this particular context, and we'll talk about it more, is more of like a a mother-father type boldness, is what he was kind of conveying and how he not only preached the word, but also in how he chose to minister amongst them. But let me just make sure everybody understands. I think many of us in here wish we were more bold. I I long for that more boldness in my life, but we find ourselves oftentimes being timid but the question is, is if we're going to be bold how Scripture calls us to be bold, we better make sure then what fuels the fire for us to be able to be bold people, to be bold in the way that God has called us to be. Again, not in the way the culture defines it, not in the way in which we define it, but in how Scripture defines what boldness looks like. Now, in many ways, just understand this, when you look at the life of Paul, he didn't appear on the outside as one who was bold. To them, like when you look at 1 Thessalonians 2.2, 2, where Christian was last week, he was a guy that had been suffering, that had, had been shamefully treated while he was in Philippi. The whole story of Philippi, if you read it in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, Paul in many ways was beat up, torn up, and he showed up at Thessalonica as a man who was pretty wore down. And then when he arrived at Thessalonica, he gets there, and it says, even in this particular context, it was in the midst of much conflict. In other words, he left one area, came to the next area, and again, it was still this difficult, rugged place to be able to communicate what he believed and and what they needed to understand about the God of the universe, specifically the person of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but when he came, he didn't do it like the world often does it. See, boldness in our culture is often associated with this idea of, of we see this like in, in, when we look at it in verse three, this idea of a show, its these, this idea of us being machissimo, us being a large bravado, us standing in front of people and telling it like it is. But Paul said, that's not how I did it here. My motives were pure. I didn't do it for show. I wasn't just trying to look like I was tough and rugged and bold on the outside. Uh-uh. I came to you all in a completely different way. In verse four, he communicates it even further. If you look down there, he says, but just as I've been approved by God, I've been entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, that's a, definitely a reality of boldness. Boldness says, look, I'm not trying to please you in this context, but to please God who, who tests our hearts. It's not to gain followers on, on your social media feed. It's not about likes in the, in the, you know, on my Instagram. He just said, no, I just, I came amongst you and I spoke as a messenger of God on his behalf to you. That's what I did. Verse five, he didn't do it for money. Verse six, he didn't do it for fame. He didn't come in with a bravado of authority. In fact, he said, I could have come in as an apostle of Jesus, but instead, and this is where he starts to connect the dots, I did it in a different way. In verse nine, probably one of the most fascinating things is he said, I, I, I came amongst you and I labored and toiled. And if anybody knows what Paul did for a living, he was a, in many ways a leather worker. We, we call it a maker of tents, but really leather is what he did. To the Jews in many ways, because he was dealing with dead animals all the time, it was like, oh, Paul, in some ways, we should shun him, and the, the, the Greeks of that time thought, oh, man, what person in their real life actually does work, and so he came amongst them as just a guy that was blue collar, making tents, doing his leather, but in this world that he was coming into, he looked so weak, he looked so feeble, he was beaten up, he was torn down, and everything we know about Paul is he was not an imposing presence. In fact, he was probably right around five foot, two inches tall. In other words, most of you would look at him and go, "Oh, you're cute!" Except he wasn't. He was bald, had a hooked nose. He had a hunchback, probably. He didn't see very well, so when he came into some place like this, he wasn't imposing. But yet when he came into this place, he made an appeal from this place that we're talking about, this idea of boldness. Christian walked us through this idea that it's a connectedness. From, chapter, or from verse two in chapter two, he, he first lays out this idea that I was bold amongst you. Then he uses the word for in verse three. It's this idea of he's taking everything from verse two and he says, I want to explain it more. Then in verse five, he grabs four and he says, he takes everything from three and four and explains it more. In verse nine, he grabs everything and he, from that has happened up to that point and he explains it even more. And then in verse 11, when he says, for you know how, he's taking everything together to show that the way that he did ministry is not how the world does it. It's not how, how we fill ourselves with this idea that I need levers of power to be able to accomplish my, my task. It's not bravado. It's not standing in front of you and telling you like it is. He said, instead, I did something so different. I acted like a mom. I acted like a dad. Now to most of us in the United States, especially the culture in which we come from, especially coming out of such bold leaders that we've had, guys like Donald Trump, who was very bold in how he came across, very eloquent, a guy like Barack Obama. All these different people, we combine them together and we say, oh, those guys are bold. But let me ask you this question. Bold in whose eyes... See, he's trying to get at something in who we are, about who we are, and how we think, and how we operate. Our figurehead is not a president. Our figurehead is not people that are talking heads on your favorite news channel. Our figurehead's in identifying what boldness is is not even whatever preacher you might hear, including me. The boldness to which he's talking about is the boldness that he carried as he followed Jesus Christ. Everything about his life was modeled after King Jesus. That was the boldness that he was referencing to and in many ways when he came amongst them both there you see this when he goes to Corinth you see this when he goes to various other places he says I know I didn't use flattering speech I know I didn't scream and yell at you I know that I didn't act all that but in 1 Corinthians 2 he tells him why he said I don't want your power to rest on me and my strength I want the power to come from God See, at the core of boldness, this is what I want you to understand. The core of boldness is not a body position. It's not the way we get in somebody's face. It's not the words that we use. Boldness comes because we know who our God is. And this is really what he's trying to drive at. And so the question that we need to ask when we kind of look at that is what is boldness then to God? Because in many ways, let me just show you verse 10 of chapter 17. Paul did not look bold when he was slinking out of town in chapter 17 from Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, it says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. Now, most people in our culture would have said, well, that's not bold. Man, he should have stayed there. He should have told them what's up. He should have got up in people's grills and faces. How dare they do that to Jason? But yet Paul and Silas left town at night, which next week you're going to learn why, so you'll have to come back next week to find out. But let me just tell you this, him leaving was bold. And so in verse 2, we see this idea of boldness. And it's very important to where we're going today. Because what we're going to do is we talk about boldness. This boldness, when you look at it inside of the Greek, it's this Greek word parasia. Greek explains it from this standpoint. It's to be open. It's not to be hidden. But it even connects this idea. And whoever connects the idea of boldness and vulnerable, it conveys the idea of I am just an open book. What you see is what you get. And I would say this, the more that you read the gospels and the more that you see Jesus, how much of him, he didn't scream and yell at people. Yeah, we have a couple times where he turned over tables when his righteous indignation, when he was angered at what they were doing to his house. But even those moments where he stand before Pilate and he stood before Herod and he stood before the religious leaders at the time, he wasn't this bravado guy getting all up in their grill. He just told him what it was. There was a calmness, a straightforwardness, but definitely not arrogance. So when the question I want to try to answer today and the stuff that I want to get into then is, is according to God's word then, where does boldness come from? How do I become bold? If it it looks a little different than everything that I'm seeing out there from the talking heads, from the key figures out there in our world, if it looks different, then where does boldness come from? What produces boldness? What is it that, that I need to know so that I can be bold like Jesus was? Because at the end of the day, my whole heart in even preaching this is I want Cornerstone to be a bold church. I want us to understand what does it mean to be bold because you cannot read the book of Acts without seeing this word mentioned over and over and over again about the church is that there was boldness. Now, here's what I want you to know. If you really want to be a bold person, you're going to have to understand hope and where it lies. That's the first one, okay? So keep that in the back of your head. If you want to be bold, you're going to have to understand hope and where it comes from. But here's the other thing. You're going to have to understand weakness. Now Let me say that again because it sounds so counterintuitive to say this. But if you really want to be bold, you're going to have to understand, first of all, hope and where and who it comes from. And number two, you're gonna to have to understand it from the standpoint that it is, does not operate outside of anything besides humility and weakness. So has everybody got that in their head with me? You with me? If so, say sure, Todd. Good, man, that helps me so much, okay. So how does it provide it? Well, let's put back up our definition of hope, okay? Let me throw that in front of you because then I'm gonna build out textually what I'm talking about. Hope is the confident expectation in God's proven faithfulness. We talked about that a few weeks ago and the desire for the good God has promised in the future for those in Christ, okay? That's the definition of hope. Now, let me show you something of how hope is connected to boldness as we work through the word of God. Now, look with me in Ephesians 3.12. This is out of the Net Bible, so that's why I have it up there explaining it. But in verse 12, it says, in whom we have boldness, speaking of God, of Christ, and confident ac- of Christ, of confident access to God, why? Well, because of Christ's faithfulness. Now, if you look back on our definition, look at that very first part of it. What's the first key aspect of hope? Faithfulness. So in other words, when we look at this inside of Ephesians 3.12, we understand, we can insert this in there, in whom we have boldness and confident access to God because of hope. Here's another one, just so I can kind of put this out. 2 Corinthians 3.12, since we have such a hope, because we have hope, we are What? bold let me just say this to you if you're somebody that truly wants to be bold in christ the last thing you should do is think that the way that you obtain boldness is how i used to think i got boldness before a football game where the coach would come in and he would start screaming and yelling how we're going to tear off their heads and do these different things and you'd have then a bunch of 16 17 and 18 year olds going ah that's not boldness that's teenage men. But <laughs> for I'll, I'll date myself a little bit here. It's not Braveheart, Mel Gibson, riding on his steed with his sword in front of everybody yelling, freedom! That's just dudes about ready to die. No, Paul says to us, one of the key aspects for understanding what is boldness is, is you better understand what hope is and who it is found in. You will never be a rightly bold person until you understand hope. So let me see if I can start to define it for us a little bit, because we're gonna, again, we're gonna build into where I'm going in verses 13 through 16 today, but you gotta get this if you're gonna understand verses 13 through 16. Boldness for Paul wasn't primarily bravery or fearlessness, and for sure it wasn't foolish bravado, Instead, it was spirit-inspired hope that fueled power rightly, controlled through weakness. So on one end, we see that hope is the thing that fuels this. In other words, if you're going to be bold, you're going to have to understand hope in Jesus Christ. But watch what he does now in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. The other side of this definition is not just fueling this power rightly by the Spirit, but in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 12, he says this. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? He goes on. Therefore, I will boast, I will have boldness all the more gladly in my strength and my power and my capacity and my ability to tell you what's up. No, my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ might rest on me. Now, what did Paul mean then by this idea of when he is weak, he's actually strong? Well, he explains a little bit earlier in, in 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, in 2 Corinthians twelve ten, when he's talking about this, he says, "For the sake of Christ, then I will I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong." And then look at verse seven, back up above. Why is it that I'm this way? What does weakness look like? It's because he wanted to become less conceited because of all the things that he knew, all the things that he understood. And so God gave him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan It says, to keep me from becoming prideful, arrogant, to keep me from thinking that the power somehow rests in me. In other words, God knew that the only way that Paul would ever have strength is to first understand that he is weak, now I get in the United States, this is not equality we generally laud. We don't laud the idea of weakness. But yet you cannot read scripture without understanding that God lauds weakness because let me tell you this, you are weak. Oh no, I'm not. Yes, you are. We all are people that are slowly dying. We all are people that aren't in control of our destiny. We all are people in this room that might think we have it all together, that might have plenty of money and all the things that we think we need. But every time you see in the Bible, the time a person begins to go, I'm good, I have power. God says, no, you don't. And he reminds them just how weak we are. That's why Jesus in John 15 said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So let me kind of get it across to you so you understand this idea of power and what he's talking about. Pride does not equal boldness. I think sometimes what happens is we mistake the difference between pride, that bravado of standing people in front of people and telling them what is, of getting up in their face, of jumping in their grill, of making these bold stands for Jesus. But at the end of the day, pride potentially is not boldness. It is driven by hope, but let me tell you this, it is controlled by weakness. In other words, we as God's people are to fuel our lives with hope in Jesus Christ. In fact, let me just say this right now. If you want to raise bold kids, if you want to be a person that's bold yourself, fuel your hope in Jesus Christ. Enjoy God's word. Put yourselves around people that know King Jesus. But understand this, that it only operates correctly from a position of weakness. It seems so counterintuitive. It seems like something that shouldn't be this way, but this is the way that God has designed it. That's why earlier in 2 Corinthians 1.8, when Paul talks about this idea of of this affliction that he had in Asia to the the Corinthians, he says, we were utterly burdened beyond our our strength so that we despaired of life. Indeed, we felt, verse nine, that we had the sense of death upon us, but that was to make us, look at this, not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. He delivers us again. Now look at this connection. Weakness and on him we have set our hope. I hope I've beat this dead horse enough. The two greatest realities to having boldness is number one, a hope in Jesus Christ, but number two, this choosing to embrace this idea of weakness. Is everybody with me to this point? Got it? Okay, I know I'm beating a dead horse, but I don't care. I'm gonna beat it in more. So let me just say this. When you encounter a truly bold person, you're actually encountering a very hopeful and weak person. Isn't that crazy? Truly bold people are ones who are very hopeful in Jesus Christ, but also very weak in who they are. I think we've seen those kind of people before. Man, this last week I was sitting down, I'd, I'd done a wedding and, and I finished, I sat down next to this guy who controls a lot of the area of the prisons in LA County somewhere and I looked at him and I go, hey dude, I, I'm gonna shoot straight with you. He goes, are you ever afraid? He goes, I used to be. I go, are you jaded? Are you angry? And all of a sudden, he began to recount this. He said, well, I guess it just depends where I have my hope in he started just unloading them in this idea of the hope that he has in King Jesus. And then he said these words. He said, what is the difference really between me and those men incarcerated apart from the fact that King Jesus has rescued my life? Me and those guys in those jail cells are no different apart from the work of King Jesus. I was sitting across from a man who had hope in King Jesus, but yet he understood he is weak. That was boldness That's the connection that God is trying to put forward, that Paul's trying to put forward. It's not a pump-up game. It's not praying for boldness. And I would say this, don't pray for boldness just to have boldness. Paul in Ephesians 5, he prayed for boldness, or 6, he prayed for boldness, why? That he might communicate with authenticity the gospel of Jesus, but he also prayed, and I know at the core of him, he just had a hope in King Jesus and an understanding of his weakness. That's why he could be bold. That was at the core of it. Let me just talk to those of you in here right now that are in your teens and your 20s. I can't imagine what it's like right now to be a high school student inside of the schools. I don't get it. I walked onto the campus and I got scared a few weeks ago. (laughs) I acted all tough and they saw that I was old and had a bald spot and then I felt ashamed. (laughs) Do not buy into the lie that you cannot be bold on your campuses. But listen to me, it's not just about trying to be bold. If you truly wanna be this person that walks onto your campuses and is a bold person, then find your hope deeply in King Jesus. And never forget that apart from the grace of God, you are no different than any person on your campus. You are weak. This is what Paul's trying to say. This is what he's trying to get across. That's why in 1.5, he talked about this idea that our gospel came to you, not only he says in word, but also in power and conviction of the Holy Spirit with full conviction. It came to you and it landed upon you and you then found this reality of hope in Jesus Christ before God the Father and that hope is really at the core of it what this boldness is. Now I say all that because I wanna explain to you because you kind of understand what Paul's doing and why he's trying to help them understand boldness with how they live inside of Thessalonica. When Paul landed the gospel on them, right, we learn this from chapter 17 of Acts, is that we know they presented it and all these people, they begin to come to life in King Jesus, they were transformed. In fact, in chapter one, we learn that all of Macedonia begins to get transformed through this group of people. But in that very moment that they chose to communicate the truths of God and anybody that's ever tried to communicate the truths of God to people, you know that you are gonna be pummeled after that. And they did. They lost their families for many of them. That's what happens inside of first generation Christians many times. They lost their jobs. They lost their social network. They were lonely. In fact, the way that I would put it is there's just, there was great sense of loss. There was this reality of wondering, is God even, is God here? Is he present? Does he know what we're going through right now? I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but I have felt that way. God, do you understand what's going on right now? In case you don't see it, I'm just kind of pointing it out. And Paul understood that. But notice he doesn't come into them speaking about boldness because I want you to kind of catch this coming in. He doesn't now come in and trying to communicate what boldness looks like and become a coach. Gentlemen, ladies, ladies, As we prepare ourselves to go and impact Thessalonica, we gotta run, 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 run. He doesn't do that. He's not a military general. That is not how he's gonna build boldness. In fact, what you're gonna see is he's just simply gonna remind them who they are in Christ Jesus. Via the Spirit, he's going to inspire hope that fuels power but he's gonna remind them in the midst of it, there is weakness, but that is boldness. Now watch what I'm gonna do here, okay? I laid all that out. There's a lot of information to land into this, but what's so crazy is that word, and, that's at the front of the sentence in verse 13, that specific word, if you remember right, I don't know, I'm gonna date myself again. Does everyone remember? Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Okay, yeah. The function of this conjunction I wish I had a word that rhymed with "shun," but I don't. The function of this conjunction really is building out everything he's just talked about. He's connecting us into this broader idea. The, the, the kind of the other word that he uses here is that he says in there we we also sorry we also thank God. He's connecting it all the way back to chapter one, verse two, where he's been giving thanks for them. But the thanks for them is that they had hope in the Lord Jesus Christ before God the Father. He was reminding them again how thankful that he was for them, but he was thankful for them because of the work that God had done in them of opening their eyes and seeing. And this is where I would say this idea of hope. One of the most important things that you can fuel within you if you're a person who struggles with hope, who struggles to kind of light that fire in there, is to truly and rightly see King Jesus before God the Father. The truly bold people understand what it means when we say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to our King. There is no one greater than King Jesus. And what's crazy is God the Father adores you if you're a follower of King Jesus as his very own son and daughter. That's boldness. Remember that game you used to play on top of the the playground where one kid would say, well, my dad does this. And you're like, well, do you understand who my dad is? Your dad is the omnipotent ruler of all things. We have to fuel ourselves in that. Our hope isn't just in a place or a time. Our hope is in a person the very creator of all things, the one who spun all of creation into existence, the one who reigns and rules over all time, bringing together all things in his good plan. And this is what Paul is. He's thanking God for them. When you look inside of verse 13, he's saying to them, I came and explained it to you. You received it. That's that first part of it. You heard from us. You heard what we were saying. You accepted it, not as just the word of man, but what it really is, the word of God. That first Peter one reality became a a seed inside of you and it sprung up into new life that's who you are see the other thing about hope is is we have to remind ourselves not who we say we are but who God says we are see we can begin to play games inside of our head can't we I mean this week I don't know if you've had weeks like this before this week for me was a testimony of the reality I still need King Jesus oh I felt like at every turn, I was finding myself going, oh, Father, forgive me for that, and then forgive, forgive me for that, Father, forgive me. It was just this testimony of it. But not only God's word, but God's people in my life just reminded me, yes, Todd, you are, apart from God, a failure, but in Christ Jesus, you are not that. You are a child of the King. He was reminding them that this message that they received, this word of God, wasn't just anything, but it was a royal declaration that our rest, our, our, the message that Paul brought to them didn't rest on powerful men or the capacity to communicate it. This message that he brought to them was able to now make them bold, 1 Peter three fifteen, because they were ready to give an answer, not for the boldness that they had within him, but in 1 Peter 3, for the hope they had within him. The idea is is you you believed, you embraced it because God opened your eyes to it and you saw for the first time in your life authentic hope in King Jesus. That's who you are. If you sit here today and you're a follower of King Jesus, never ever forget this. That message that you received, that message that you heard, that message that you accepted wasn't just any old message. It was a message from King Jesus, from God himself. In in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, he calls it the gospel of God, the good news of God. Oh, that message changed you and you know it. You will never be the same person again. That's why he says at the end of 13 it's at work in you. The Greek word's oh, it literally means you flourished. You came to life. Things were transformed. Now, they probably thought, yeah, okay, but it doesn't change anything. I still feel so much loss. I still feel so much loneliness. I still feel so much fear. And this is what's so important, what Christian talked about last week. Family. See, he's not only gonna remind them who they are in Christ Jesus, he's not only gonna remind them who God is and the message that was brought to them that transformed them, but now he's gonna tell them about their extended family. Watch this. Look in verse 14. For you brothers, he says, here's a key word, became imitators. You started to look like, is the idea, the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. I think if he were looking in front of me, he's like, no, 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 you gotta understand something. (laughs) When you guys became followers of Jesus, this is the hope I wanna give you. You look just like the followers of Jesus in Judea, Samaria, all of Palestine. You guys look just like them. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Samaritan or Greek. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter any of that. When the gospel truly transforms your life, you start to look like your family. You start to look like these people in this way. Now watch the way he says it. And this is encouraging. For you suffered. Now again, they're probably sitting there going, whoa, 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 So you saw our family resemblance because we suffered? Yes. All who choose to live godly in Christ Jesus, they're gonna be persecuted. It was the mark of King Jesus. It was the mark of the apostles. It was the mark of God's people throughout the age of the church the mark of God's people is that we suffer and even throws in this idea, something from our own countrymen as they did from the Jews. It looks just the same. Remember how in Hebrews 12, it talks about this idea that God loves those or he disciplines those that he loves. Everybody remember that statement? Because he disciplines those who are truly his children. In other words, what Paul is saying to them is that the mark of followers of Jesus, one of the key marks that you're gonna see is that we will suffer. It's part of who we are. It's the it's in our genetic makeup. It's part of our material. This is what I mean. He's not a halftime coach coming in trying to rally the troops. He's coming in with openness, with transparency, with vulnerability, and just saying then in boldness: this is who you are, and this is who your family is. If you're struggling, if you're suffering, if you're following King Jesus, just understand that, he says. This is part of what our family does. It makes us a true family. It makes us know who we truly are. And like I said, those that are first generation Christians, you get this. When I came to know Jesus, my parents were stoked about me being a follower of Jesus, so I didn't face persecution. In fact, I would say for my mom and my dad, they were like, oh my gosh, thank you, Lord, because they thought I was gonna wreck my life. But I lost so many friends. I lost people that didn't understand who I was as much as I tried to. And let me just say this. I had a boldness at times that was not a boldness from King Jesus. It was arrogance. I drove them away. I didn't have that boldness that came in that understood who God was. I didn't have to yell and scream. I didn't have to tell him like it was. I didn't have to bravado or machismo. I could just lay it out there as an open book and speak it Now, what do you mean that our family suffers? Look at verse 15. They suffer from our own country. In this case, he's gonna connect it to the Jews, but he says in there, these these Jews, and by the way, this is not anti-Semitism. I'll explain it when I'm talking about just a little bit later, because Paul was Jewish, Jesus was Jewish. This is not the case. But he says in there, who killed both the Lord Jesus, in other words, that's part of your family, who killed the prophets, these people that have been around for ages, that drove us out, Paul is talking about him and Titus and Timothy, in other words, he's connecting. That's what your family has done throughout time and that's what your family has done throughout all geography, that's who you are. You're designed to find your hope in God but you're also designed to be people who suffer because in this it maintains weakness. These people, he says in there, here's here's the connection. These people displease God. They oppose all of mankind. Look at verse 16. How do they oppose? By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. In other words, that's normal. The reason you can have boldness in speaking the message of the gospel, just listen to me. People may hate you. Again, please don't be the arrogant bold, that true Jesus bold where you come in amongst people and speak with transparency and openness. They do not hate you. They hate the message. Because this message says to them, you are weak. You are needy. You are desperate. That apart from knowing, following, and loving King Jesus... You are set apart from God and you are in a terrible position, and your only hope is found in the death, burial, and resurrection of King Jesus. And let me tell you now about why this is so important. But we don't like to be told that. Oftentimes we don't share because we think somehow this is personal. It's not personal, it's loving. I would even say this, why most Christians probably don't suffer is because we, we don't speak with that openness about King Jesus. We're called to communicate it. Now, not in pride, not like Peter, when he, you know, all everybody was standing in front of him, Jesus says, I'm about to die, and he goes, oh no, you're not, Lord, and Jesus says to him, that kind of boldness, Peter, that's demonic, that's prideful. But we're understanding in some ways how to communicate what it means that they are not right with God and people oftentimes don't like to hear that. And what they begin to face from the people around them is persecution but let me kind of explain to you this next statement so always to fill up the measure of their sins. On one end, what it's meant to do is as people are persecuting you, as people are doing evil, injustice that is all around you, let me just tell you this, God sees it. God sees the ills of our culture. He sees abortion. He sees these realities and how we're redefining humanity as something that's good when actually it's evil. God sees what's going on in the murder and the mayhem. God sees all those things. And in many ways, we as Christians begin to think, oh, people are getting away with it. So therefore, we need to step in with human means and bring about an end to injustice. And let me tell you something, Christians are called to enter into injustice. We are called to go there. But we're to go there with an understanding that vengeance is not ours. Vengeance is God's. So on one side, it's the trust in God that he has all things. And that's why I think we can enter rightly into injustice and wrongs within our world. But there's another side of it as well. It's meant to create compassion. And this week, I, I was walking through Simi Valley thinking about this. People may not know this, but all around them, they are storing up sins against the God of the universe. That's crazy. And in this particular case, when he's talking about the Jewish people, Jesus has spoke about it like in Matthew 23. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build tombs of prophets, you decorate monuments of the righteous saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus it says, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who are murdered and prophets. Now watch this, fill up then the measure of your fathers. That's a key word there. You're not getting away with anything the sin that you're committing is just being filled up against you, not just as individuals, but as whole peoples. In Romans 1.18, it talks about the wrath of God, not just coming on individuals. The wrath of God is coming on top of humanity for those that don't know him. And this is where this is so key. And this is where it's important to understand who's God and us not being God and how then we can have an empathy because I think empathy is a huge part of boldness. He says to them, verse verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers! How are you to escape being sent to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of whom you will kill and crucify. Some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on the day, on, so that on, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. In other words, it's been building for years. In fact, in John 19, the the peak of all of it, of God's people's rejection of him, and again, it's not just his people, all people have rejected God, was when in John 19, all of the Jews that were there said, let his blood be upon our heads, and they had no clue what they were asking. Verse 36, truly I say to you, all things, all these things, he says, Will come upon this generation. And now Paul says, and wrath has come upon them at last. Now let me explain that to you. The idea is that it is wrath with more wrath to come. In AD 44, after years of the Jewish people kind of causing problems within the Roman Empire. They, reached, they, in 44 AD, put a strict kind of providential reality around them where they were, they were squeezed into their area I and mean, they were not permitted to do many of the things that they thought they should be able to do. They, they couldn't do their rights. In AD 49, finally the Romans began to get done with it and they began to kill thousands of people around the temple and all the Jewish people were kicked out of Rome. In other words, Paul is saying to them, are you watching what's going on already? You're already seeing the wrath of God being brought upon his very precious people, those that he loves dearly, that he has loved from almost the very beginning. In other words, if that wrath will come upon them, oh my goodness, it will come upon anybody. It was inaugurated at that point. All the injustice, all the getting away with it, all the evil, and there comes a time when God finally says, That's it. Let me be clear on this. He loved them. In Luke 19, 41, it talks about this idea when Jesus, as he drew near the city, it says, and he saw it, he look at this word, he wept over it. The idea is he ugly cried over it. Saying, What would you, even you, had known on this day, the things that are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when the enemies will set about a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in from every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You missed the fact that I came to you. And in 70 AD, Jerusalem was decimated. God was saying, I'm done. I don't miss this. Let me just reverse real quick. God didn't do it from a position of arrogance. He didn't do it from a position of flippancy. He did it from a position in which God is with straining his wrath for a time, but there will come a time where God is done. That's why Jesus wept. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul said, those of you who are followers of Jesus need to understand this. As followers of Jesus, you're delivered from the wrath to come because that wrath was merely just the beginning I know like people are always worried about, you hey, we're gonna teach this whole idea of hell by fire and brimstone. Let me just tell you this. It is a reality. Jesus is the loving Savior beckoning all people to himself right now. But after a while, the wrath of God will come upon all of humanity and all of those who are not in King Jesus will experience the wrath of God. And it won't just be destroying a city. The Bible says all the world will be destroyed and you will be separated from God forever. And even as I'm saying this to you right now, those of you that don't know Jesus understand this, I'm not saying it arrogantly. I'm not saying it in any other way other than in compassion for you. Today is the day for you to bend your knee truly to King Jesus Those of you that are teenagers and 20-somethings, you don't have to play the game that I'm just gonna kind of hang around and do my fun stuff until until I'm older and then I'll I'll come to King Jesus. No, come to him today. Find your hope in him today. Be who God's called you to be today because that day may not come around and you will experience the wrath of God forever. All of us in this room. But Jesus came so that we might flee the wrath or escape the wrath to come God came that we might have salvation through Jesus Christ who died for us whether awake or sleep and alive with him. He's not destined us that are in Christ Jesus for wrath. This is why it's so important when I talk about Boldness. We're not gonna win over people by screaming and yelling at them. We're not gonna win over people with bravado. We're not gonna win over people with arrogance. We're not gonna win over people with machismo. We're not gonna win over people but telling them what it is We are gonna win over people by being those that understand the God who controls and rules all things, the son who came and died so that we might live and escape the wrath that is to come with an understanding that one day, King Jesus is returning to restore all things in the way that he intends, but Jesus one day isn't coming as savior, he's coming as judge. And so this is what I mean. Paul's not giving a locker room talk here. He's not trying to get them all boldied up to be able to go out and play a game. He's just looking at them and saying, find your hope in King Jesus. Embrace your suffering in such a way that it creates meekness and weakness and it creates humility. And then just go be an open book to the world. Just be an open book. Speak to people like he talks about in 1 Peter 3 of the hope that is within you. Now, here's your homework. Go speak about Jesus this week. Go speak. Now, some of you are like, go find your hope in the king. Embrace your fear because if you're not afraid to talk to people, there's something wrong with you. And go speak King Jesus. Have you got your homework? You got it? Not arrogantly, not with bravado, not with machismo. Just be an open book about the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And all God's people said, Amen. amen.